everyone. You're listening to The Katie Helper Show, and I'm your host, Katie Helper. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show, where for just $1 a month, you can help make the show happen. And for $5 a month, you'll qualify for great bonus content, including alternative podcast feed and rarely seen clips that aired on our live shows. Welcome, Jan. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you for inviting me. Of course. So you issued an appeal for peace against the war. You did this from the Czech Republic. I wanted to know why you did that and what your thoughts are on the war, both how it started, but also how it can be stopped. Yeah, to put it in a context, early this year, uh, in January, with several colleagues of mine, uh, we set up a peace initiative called Peace and Justice. So in the name of this initiative, we made an appeal um, to our government, but also other governments, to stop sending arms to uh, Ukraine, because we believe that sending weapons only prolongs the war. And we asked in this appeal for an immediate ceasefire and opening of these negotiations, diplomatic uh, uh, solution. Um, obviously, um, it's a controversial issue, and we, we were aware from the very beginning that many people will disagree, in particular with the issue of ceasefire, because even some of our colleagues and members of parliament argued that um, a ceasefire will only help the Russian side because when if the West stops sending arms and weapons to Ukraine, Ukraine will be militarily defeated by Russia. I think that uh, it's a it's a dangerous misinterpretation of uh, of our call. Uh, we made it very clear from the very very beginning that any ceasefire will have to be observed by both sides. One side in ceasefire will not be able to, to, to work. And only a ceasefire which is observed and negotiated and agreed upon by both sides will, in our opinion, create sufficient space for diplomats to replace generals and soldiers, sit around the table and begin negotiations about a peaceful solution to this conflict. We have agreed, even with some American experts, including uh, U.S. Uh, General Mark Milley, that there is no military solution. Neither side is able to militarily, decisively defeat the other. And sending arms to Ukraine will only uh, prolong the war and lead to greater devastation of the country, to more people being killed, and it will not bring about end of the war um, and end of the uh, suffering, which is why we stress that, uh, and we understand that negotiations are difficult, but a ceasefire is extremely necessary to be agreed upon as soon as possible, because every day the war continues, thousands of people on both sides are being, are being killed. Uh, so this is, this is our argument. 
The argument also is that um, obviously so much bloodshed has been uh, uh, and so much hatred that there is no possibility, or at least we don't believe there is a possibility for both sides to agree on a ceasefire. There would have to be uh, a powerful intermediary. There are already some precedents, like uh, already on 8th of February last year, before the war started, uh, French President Macron agreed with both uh, President Putin and President Zelensky to sign an agreement on uh, uh, neutrality of Ukraine. But the following day, President Zelensky changed his mind after uh, we understand uh, uh, talking to his American friends. In March, in Istanbul, with the help of the Turkish President uh, Erdogan and the UN, once again an agreement was reached on uh, uh, neutrality. And again, when Zelensky returned to Kiev, he changed his mind following a visit by the then British Prime Minister Boris Johnson, who asked him uh, uh, to continue to fight with the full support of President Biden of the United States. So uh, we know it is difficult, and therefore uh, we hope that a powerful group of intermediaries will step in and arrange for the ceasefire and the uh, diplomatic talks. At the moment, we believe that uh, such a group of intermediaries will be almost certainly led by China, will be joined by the Brazilian president, Lula Silva, who already uh, made clear that he supports uh, such a solution. And then, once uh, these two important actors will make their position clear, I think it will be joined by Turkey, France, Germany, and, uh, and, and some others. And obviously, any agreement would have to be uh, guaranteed and supervised, in my opinion, by, uh, by United Nations. Um, the negotiations will be long, painful, and difficult. Both sides will have to make some concessions, and this is not going to be easy. I do believe that despite the uh, verbal declarations of NATO leaders, including uh, top American politicians, that the collective West should support Ukraine as long as it, as long as it takes uh, or until final victory, uh, as President Zelensky frequently uses that term, um, I think that they know that this is nonsense, that this is uh, non-realistic. Um, that's why I think they uh, are looking for uh, an improvement on the, uh, on the battlefield. Uh, I think they were hoping that the current Ukrainian offensive will be more successful than it is, then it would... Uh, improve the position of the Ukraine army and therefore create a better position for the negotiations. I think that everybody, if they admit it publicly or not, everybody is convinced that uh, uh, there is no other solution but uh, uh, diplomatic solution. But they, both sides are trying to work or manipulate 
create a situation which would be more advantageous to them for uh, the negotiations. Because obviously each side wants to negotiate from the position of strength. In fact, that will not happen. Um, I do believe that uh, the intermediaries should come with some proposals, constructive proposals, which may be acceptable to both sides. In my opinion, and the opinion of my colleagues here in, my, in our peace initiative, we believe that uh, the framework would have to be an agreement uh, that uh, Ukraine will not join uh, NATO, because that's the red line for the Russians, um, and have been since uh, uh, 2007 when President Putin made it clear uh, publicly at international conferences and repeated it many times since then. If it's uh, uh, rational or not, uh, I don't want to comment, but those of us who know Russian history are aware that uh, all Russian leaders, um, presidents, communist leaders, tars before, were always afraid of encirclement. Uh, we're always afraid of uh, foreign invasions. Um, as I said, I don't want to comment if it's rational or not, but we have to take it into account that this is how they think. So, I fully understood when uh, in 1991, the last Soviet President Gorbachev asked uh, President Bush and Chancellor Kohl uh, that uh, they should promise not to move NATO uh, eastwards if it agrees to withdraw Soviet troops from uh, GDR, from East Germany, which is what they asked him because they wanted East Germany uh, to be unified with West Germany and to join NATO. And State Secretary James Baker at the time made it very clear that um, NATO will not move one inch, inch eastwards, if we, if I quote him. Unfortunately, Gorbachev was, um, sorry to put it like that, naive enough to, to believe uh, a spoken word, a spoken promise by top Western leaders and didn't ask for a binding signed peace agreement. Therefore, we only have recordings, memories of uh, officials who attended those meetings. Um, I've read about 300 pages of them and I'm absolutely convinced that uh, this is the case and that unfortunately um, the West has not uh, fulfilled that promise. Um, and uh, since 1991, uh, NATO has moved closer and closer to Russian borders. Um, if Ukraine would join NATO, that in the Russian eyes would definitely uh, be a security threat. Uh, and uh, this, is, uh, this is a situation in which uh, military conflicts uh, take place. And those, who, those in the West who believe that we should fight to the last Ukrainian and send more and more sophisticated weapons 
Ukrainians in order to ensure uh, victory of Ukraine. I think naively forget that Russia is still a nuclear superpower. And this is a very risky behavior. In a hypothetical situation, well, for example, with the help of Western weapon, uh, modern weaponry, Ukraine will uh, be on the verge of uh, taking back Ukraine, which is extremely important to Russia. I think at that moment, um, there is no guarantee that President Putin will not uh, resort to the use of, say, tactical nuclear weapon. And then we are on a very slippery, slippery slope to a, uh, a nuclear holocaust, which I believe nobody, nobody wants to see. And therefore convinced that we should not play with such a risky situation, that we should not uh, uh, even allow this to, uh, to happen. That's why we are asking for immediate ceasefire and, and negotiations. I am absolutely convinced that if the conditions, the circumstances are correct, Russia may be prepared to withdraw from some of the territories they now occupy and keep their uh, soldiers on, on two territories, on Donbass, that is on those two uh, separatist uh, republics, Luhansk uh, and Donetsk, um, and in Crimea. I can't believe that uh, there is any possibility, even a distant possibility, of Ukraine, um, if I use the terminology of President Zelensky, liberating Crimea, i.e. militarily uh, defeating Russian troops in, uh, in Crimea. And I think even attempting that is, as I said, risking that uh, President Putin and put in a corner um, in order to avoid the, the uh, unthinkable uh, defeat uh, could resort to the use of nuclear uh, nuclear weapon. Um, that's why uh, the slogan uh, the used also occasionally by U.S. President that we should support Ukraine as long as it takes. Um, I think is a is a is a dangerous approach, um, which would only result in more and more people being killed, and it will not bring nearer the possibility of sitting down and and discussing peace. I also believe that any these discussions would have to include the possibility of new referenda to take place in particular in Donbass and in Crimea. And obviously not under supervision of the uh, Russian army, but under the supervision of the United Nations. And if in such a referenda, majority of the Russian-speaking population in these territories will reject the possibility of um, uh, being reintegrated into Ukraine, that would have to be respected by the international international community, which, in my opinion, unfortunately, 
sometimes resorts to understand um, what was allowed in Kosovo is not allowed in uh, in uh, in Caucasian, in uh, in Ossetia, in uh, Abkhazia. Um, I remember long time ago President Obama in one speech in the same breath praised the principle of self-determination uh, linked to the protest uh, which took place in the Maidan Square in in, uh, in Kiev, which eventually led to the downfall of uh, uh, democratically elected President Yanukovych, and uh, at the same time rejected any application of the principle of self-determination in Crimea. Um, I think uh, the West would, should agree the principle of self-determination should be respected, should be applied, should be implemented, but there should not be double standards. Um, that undermines the, uh, the authenticity, that undermines the whole uh, principle as such. So, I very much hope that uh, uh, we could recreate the type of international peace movement, which I remember from the 70s and 80s. I was then a Czech emigrant in the United Kingdom and took active part in the struggle against the installation of uh, cruise and Pershing missiles in Western Europe and SF-20 uh, Soviet missiles in Eastern Europe. At that time, there was a quite powerful uh, international peace movement. Um, I remember myself working both with the British, the Dutch, the Germans, but also with uh, uh, similar groups in the Czechoslovakia, Poland, uh, Slovenia. I very much hope that today, and the situation is uh, even more dangerous, we could inspire number of the national peace groups, and I a few days ago attended a peace conference in Ivrana in Slovenia and before that in Vienna. So I'm aware that there are a number of peace groups, but they are not properly linked. They don't cooperate. They don't coordinate. They don't yet present um, a unified uh, position, for example, on the need for ceasefire. But I do believe that uh, more people become aware of the dangers, and I'm very grateful to your program that you are trying to explain this to people. The more people will understand this, the greater likelihood is that the national peace groups will become international, and then they will get greater cloud, and therefore have possibility of applying more pressure on their respective governments to understand that uh, Sending weapons to Ukraine will not bring about peace uh, and only prolong the war. And that, therefore, that the government should cooperate to create, uh, as I said, a group of intermediaries capable of negotiating a peaceful solution to this conflict. And how would the U.S. wind down the military support? I don't see any major problem. I mean, the United States is, is already militarily 
present in the, in Ukraine. Um, uh, and this, I think, will be an argument of the Russian side that they would like uh, uh, Ukraine not only to guarantee to be neutral, not to join NATO, but not to have foreign military bases and, and all offensive weapons uh, on its territory. But that has to be part of the negotiations. Um, um, it's not on me to tell them how to do that. And the, the parties themselves would have to agree on, on, on the actual terms. Um, but if Ukraine is guaranteeing a political support, uh, and I political support of the West, including the United States, um, uh, this I think will be uh, more than acceptable to Kiev. Uh, that they will have, will have no longer any fear of another uh, Russian invasion. Um, but, and that I think will be very difficult following the uh, recent summit in Vilnius, NATO summit in Vilnius, there would have to be an explicit statement that uh, Ukraine will join the West. Ukraine will almost certainly in time, in time, the long time, join, you know, join the Europe, European Union will become part of uh, economic, social, and military West, but will not be a member of NATO. That, I think, will be crucial. And and I, I do hope that US politicians will understand that uh, same as they will never accept Mexico to become a member of Warsaw Bicep. Uh, same as they could not tolerate Soviet missiles in Cuba, they have to understand the way Russia perceives its own security uh, and, uh, and make at least a certain conciliatory step towards that understanding. And, and I think embracing Ukraine, guaranteeing their freedom, guaranteeing their democracy, um, uh, but Avoiding a former membership of NATO uh, is, I think, one step, which uh, could open the gate to meaningful negotiations about peace in that region. And, as I said before, uh, no longer applying double standards. Um, principle of self national self-determination is important. But let's apply equally on both sides. And the United States is at the moment not doing that. Um, and uh, that's why I stress that part of the package, the peaceful package, would have to be an agreement to have a referendum in those territories where you have uh, a majority of uh, Ukrainian citizens who are Russian speakers, and that referendum would have to be organized and supervised by the United Nations, not obviously by the uh, uh, Russian army as it was in the past. And what do you think is motivating the West? Why are they not trying to promote more diplomacy or call for a ceasefire? That's a good question. Um, and... Uh, uh, if you really ask top Western politicians this, 
watching all this speculate. Um, and I'm basing my speculation on uh, published statements by some Western politicians, including uh, uh, United States uh, uh, Secretary of Defense, who obviously will come to possibility of weakening Russia, um, which, he, which he said explicitly. I think that uh, is, is, is one of the reasons um, that they want to continue to war, because it will lead to a uh, significant major weakening of Russia without the West uh, losing uh, a single soldier. Uh, the greatest price is being paid by Ukrainians, Ukrainian soldiers and, and civilian population. Uh, so I think this, this political motivation incentive is there. Secondly, this will make certain circles of people extremely rich. Um, if you look at the figures, uh, I think U.S. has spent about 30 billion U.S. dollars worth of uh, military military uh, gear and weapons uh, outside humanitarian and uh, other help. And therefore, for example, uh, I can understand that uh, U.S. arms manufacturers uh, are very happy about the situation. Uh, this is... Uh, um, of the greatest income they had since the Second World War. Um, to a certain extent, um, this also applies to Europe, both, both so-called Western and Eastern Europe, including my own country, which exports arms to, uh, uh, to Ukraine, but of course not on the level and scope uh, as, as, as United States. But, so, the motivation of those who make uh, uh, profit uh, of this war and have influence on their governments um, is probably another reason joining the, uh, the political one. And thirdly, um, I think the West got itself into such a situation when they believed that if uh, they would allow Russia to win, uh, this military conflict, which I don't see it feasible, but I can understand that some Western politicians um, and even military people uh, persuaded themselves that this would be a great danger, that uh, certain countries on the Eastern Bloc of NATO will be threatened, including Baltic countries, and that it would uh, encourage Russia to continue with this uh, uh, aggressive invasions and aggressive postures. I don't believe that's the case. Uh, I don't believe that Russia was from the very beginning motivated by taking over the whole of Ukraine, for example, uh, let alone um, the nonsense that uh, if they are not stopped on uh, uh, on Donbass or on, on Yepre, that they would then march into Warsaw or Prague. Uh, I think these are Demagogic statements by by some politicians, um, uh, but I can see that uh, it will not be uh, easy to persuade everybody 
uh, that uh, a ceasefire, a compromise, um, which would allow uh, the territory adjoining Russian border to be free of uh, NATO soldiers and NATO uh, weapons uh, bases, um, that this may be perceived by some NATO fanatics as a uh, as a kind of a defeat or as a failure, and they want to and they would like to avoid that. It it's, it became after the year um, also a, a prestige uh, question, uh, which is highly unfortunate because, as I said, countries and statesmen don't like to uh, lose face. Um, that's why I'm uh, a believer in this constructive work of the intermediaries and states, powerful states like uh, China or Brazil and the United Nations, India and others, um, who would help to negotiate an agreement which would not be perceived as, as a defeat by one side or the or the other. Uh, but certain governments would have to curtail the ambitions of the arms industry because for the arms manufacturers, this is the greatest income they had for many, many years and they would be reluctant to give it up. And then you have this kind of military-industrial media complex where you have people on the boards of arms manufacturers who appear as guests on the media and they don't even have to announce that conflict of interest. And then you have this revolving door between people who work in politics and then go to work at Lockheed Martin um, or Raytheon and don't have to reveal it. So then the media is also sending the same message. Yes. And are there any precedents for this kind of diplomacy ceasefire negotiation that you can point to as hopefully an example of something like this working when a conflict seemed inevitable or intractable? There's no precedent for this type of conflict. Um, At least I can't think of one. On the other hand, there were situations in the past when the world faced the possibility um, of a major uh, confrontation and avoided it at the last minute. Um, uh, the, the case in point which uh, I can think of is the, uh, is the Cuban crisis uh, of the uh, 1960s. Um, at that time, it was uh, also a clash of will between uh, President Joseph Kennedy and, uh, and, uh, and uh, President Khrushchev, or uh, Secretary General Khrushchev. Um, and... Uh, In my opinion, uh, uh, a common sense uh, at the last minute prevailed, but it was almost at the last minute. Um, The Soviets um, uh, withdrew when they were even offered uh, uh, the possibility by President Kennedy that the United States will... um, in time, in short time, uh, withdrew uh, from Turkey, which again 
uh, was perceived by by Russians or by Soviets as dangerous because uh, they uh, they shared the they share a joint border, um, and obviously um, weapons of an adversary so close to their border uh, they perceived as as a threat to their uh, national security. Um, I think it was then a, a smart diplomatic negotiation, negotiations on both sides, uh, which led to uh, a highly acceptable uh, compromise. And um, so that's a situation which, to my mind, is comparable to a certain extent uh, to today. But I can't see of uh, such a multilateral uh, involvement of negotiate, negotiators, which this would have to involve. This is not just, I mean, in my opinion, we are witnessing the proxy war uh, between Russia and, and NATO. Without NATO's involvement, Ukraine will not be able to uh, be as successful as it was uh, up to now. Um, uh, so this is not a Russian-Ukrainian war solely. It's a proxy war between NATO and, uh, and Russia. Therefore, it involves more countries, more armies, more politicians, and therefore it's going to be more difficult to uh, put an end to it. But a diplomatic solution is the only possible. No, there is no alternative other than um, a major confrontation risking uh, a nuclear holocaust. Um, so in that sense, it's comparable uh, to the Cuban crisis. And um, I'm quite surprised that um, those who remember the Cuban crisis uh, find it difficult to imagine why President Putin and the Russians were so afraid of NATO troops in Ukraine. Um, if once again you would have, uh, say, Russian missiles in Cuba or uh, some Russian uh, or Chinese, for that matter, uh, military bases in, in Mexico um, or, in, uh, or in Toronto, um, I'm sure the uh, United States would not be prepared to tolerate that and will respond in a, in a similar manner uh, as Putin did. Um, it is sometimes important, and I think President Kennedy made that point, that you have to think or try to find your way into the mind of your adversary and, and try to understand how the adversary thinks and perceives uh, the situation. Um, you may or may not agree with it, um, but it's a fact, and you have to deal with that fact uh, and be realistic about it. If not, then you really run uh, a major risk of a confrontation. And I think today we are, uh, I don't want to be a scaremonger, we are closer to uh, a nuclear confrontation than ever since, uh, since the Cuban crisis. Do you think that the frequent, at least in the, in the American media, I don't know about the rest of the Western media, but there's a frequent comparison that's made between Hitler and Putin. Do you see this in European media or is this mostly an American thing? 
in some European media uh, and in the in the uh, speeches of some European politicians, yes, not very frequently, um, because you can't erase collective memory of nations uh, so easily. Obviously, uh, people who don't like Russians or Putin or are afraid of uh, what used to be perceived as a as great power of Russia and, and wanted to reduce that power, diminish it, immediately find the comparison with Hitler. Um, I think it's a very bad comparison. It's the same thing as uh, um, when in 2003 uh, the Americans were trying to justify the invasion of Iraq without the uh, mandate of the United Nations, which I remember well because I was president of the United Nations General Assembly at the time. Uh, uh, some of them also made the comparison between Saddam Hussein and Hitler. I think that's an equally false uh, comparison. Hitler put forward uh, a dangerous uh, racist theory which he used to justify domination uh, of, uh, of the whole of Europe and hopefully wanted to dominate the world. Um, I can't, there is nothing in what uh, President Putin ever said, which would lead me to believe that the Russians had uh, uh, similar plans, aims, ambitions. Um, not only it's obvious from the uh, performance of the army that they would not be able to do it, but I don't think that uh, uh, they never put any justification for that. Several times since uh, 2007, um, and then uh, uh, NATO conferences, international conferences uh, on security issues where Putin spoke a number of times. He always talked about the threat of closeness uh, of, of NATO to Russian borders as a threat to its national security, which, and he warned a number of times that if that happens, we would have to respond. Um, so, um, Although I didn't expect that they would uh, uh, invade the way they did, I, I expected that they would uh, send troops to the two separatist republics and create a certain cordon sanitaire between their borders. They went further, it's their decision, but nothing they've done or nothing they said would uh, allow me, and I'm not pro-Russian uh, as such at all, I have absolutely no reason to have the Russians. I have no reason to to believe that they should be compared to uh, Nazi Germany or Putin to uh, to Hitler. And as I said, I have no love for them. My father was sentenced to 25 years imprisonment um, in the Czech uh, Trump charges, uh, Trump political trials in the 50s, which were organized under the supervision of uh, Soviet advisors. Uh, my country was invaded in 1968 and I was forced to become an emigre. I was thrown out of my country. Uh, I couldn't study, etc. I had absolutely no reasons to be sympathetic either to the Soviet Union or the Russians. On the other hand, I have to reject these kind of uh, purposeful uh, demagogic uh, comparisons with, uh, with Nazi Germany or Hitler. It seems like that is something that has really penetrated much of kind of the American psyche 
And I think what makes it so dangerous, besides just being a historical and a very bad comparison, is that the logical takeaway from it is that you can't negotiate because you couldn't negotiate with Hitler. I agree with you. You couldn't negotiate with Hitler. But you can definitely negotiate with Putin. And in fact, uh, uh, already in March uh, last year, uh, the first negotiations took place under the supervision of uh, Turkish president and the United Nations. So there is precedent. Uh, you can negotiate. And, and Putin made it very clear uh, that he's prepared to negotiate because he's obviously aware that, uh, that there is no alternative. He doesn't have the strength to military defeat uh, the collective force of NATO. Um, even if he planned to do that, which I don't believe is the case, but uh, he made it several times clear that he is prepared to negotiate. He made it clear to uh, uh, the Chinese president, see, uh, he made it clear to the Brazilian president, Rodolfo Silva. Um, so let's take him at his word. Um, and, uh, and renew the negotiations. Some of them were already started as early as, as I said, 8th of February. Uh, last year by French President Emmanuel Macron. So um, it, it's obviously uh, either ignorance of facts or demagogy uh, to claim that uh, you can't negotiate with the Russians. Just the contrary. Uh, I don't believe there is anything, any alternative to negotiations. You have to negotiate. One final question, because I know you've been very generous with your time and it's late there. Europe is paying a higher price for this than Americans, obviously, because of questions of geography and economies. So what do the European governments want from this? What do NATO governments want from this continued war? Is it a question of the arms industry controlling these governments, or is there something else? The arms industry is obviously playing a role. Uh, I don't think they play such a decisive role as they play in the United States, but they do play a role. You have to become aware of... Uh, of, of what is NATO. NATO is not an alliance of equals. One country is much more powerful than any other within NATO and is the main decision maker. Um, at the moment, I can't see in the European government, with maybe the exception of Hungary, uh, to a certain extent for different reasons, but one of the important powerful European governments None of them will uh, risk a, a real confrontation with the United States administration. Um, if there will be at least a hint from the United States that, uh, they, that they perceive an alternative to the continuation of the war, then I'm absolutely certain that uh, Europe will support it. This war is not advantageous for Europe. The sanctions hurt Europe more than anybody else, much more than Russians and much more than the United States. The war uh, has an economic uh, uh, terrible impact on, on, on Europe. Uh, the uh, economic and therefore social situations of most of our countries here uh, it's, it's getting worse and the governments try to justify it by reference to the uh, to this war 
which I'm not absolutely sure is, is, is correct in the last minute, to the last detail. Uh, but the war does play a major role. A ceasefire will definitely help Europe. But Europe is not in a position to rally the uh, United States. At least current European governments uh, don't show that courage uh, and ability to, uh, to resist. And therefore, I do believe that negotiations will start at the moment when United States will hint that they have no major objections against it. And therefore, I believe that a fertile soil for negotiations will be created by the end of this year and beginning of next year because of the U.S. primaries. To me, <laughs> I would very much like the ceasefire to stop uh, to be implemented tomorrow. Uh, but unfortunately, it will not happen. My major hope is that uh, the U.S. elections uh, will prevent uh, the U.S. administration to continue to claim we'll fight the last Ukrainian and support Ukraine as, as long as it takes. I'm no supporter of former President uh, Donald Trump. Uh, I have to say that. On the other hand, when Trump publicly says, uh, if I'm elected president, I will stop this war in 24 hours, that's naive. He will not be able to do that. But that's a slogan. It's a very powerful one. And I don't think that a democratic president can challenge that slogan by continuing to say, um, we will fight to the last Ukrainian and support Ukraine as long as it takes. Um, I think if people would then have to make a decision, electoral decision between war and peace, the war supporters will be on a losing wicket. And therefore, I do believe that uh, by the end of the year, the current U.S. government will come up with some offer of uh, a compromise with some less belligerent talk, uh, with at least creating space for uh, the group of intermediaries which I mentioned, where I think uh, China, United Nations, and Brazil will, will play a major role. It will be important if the United States would at least not stop that, if we will not challenge that, if we will not resist that, if we will give them space and time to see that the negotiations can begin to take place. Once the negotiations will take place, once the ceasefire is agreed upon, then I think it's only a question of time when the killing will stop um, and, uh, and, and, and the peace will prevail. But I unfortunately believe that we may have to wait towards the end of this year. I'm no supporter of, uh, of uh, former State Secretary Henry Kissinger, because I, I didn't like his decision to bomb Cambodia, Vietnam, and all that. And I also have a certain memory. On the other hand, yes, some of his current analysis is definitely worth taking into account. And I think he's right when he says that uh, by Christmas, the situation will be right for the start of negotiations. And if Joe Biden wanted to, could he end the war right now? In a way, yes. I think that if he if he says that um, 
lots of people suddenly from day one to day two stop sending Saki Kandu for political reasons. But if he says, um, well, certain American generals like Mark Milley and or academics like, uh, Barry Paulson and others said, there is no medicine solution and that he support a possibility of these negotiations which will guarantee that Ukraine will have the right freely and democratically to elect its own government, that it will not become a vassal state of Russia. If he says something like that, although the most tricky question will be how to achieve the, uh, the future of Crimea and Donbass. But I think if he would then allow United Nations supervised and organized referendum, then it's not against any uh, principles of the Democratic Party I know. Um, and therefore, he would have to find the courage uh, to hint at that. If he at least makes clear that the uh, United States is not prepared to fight to the last Ukrainian, that they do believe in, uh, in peaceful solution, many others will join uh, very quickly. And therefore, it would not be solely on him. But given the specific, powerful and major role of the United States, uh, I think the, the first step, moderate, careful, pragmatic, the first step towards creating space for negotiations should come from the United States. Um, it may come from China and others, unfortunately. But to answer your question, if it does come from the United States, it will be there will be a greater guarantee that it will work. That's a small remark. Yeah. I, I recently read um, an interesting article by uh, American University professor uh, Barry Posen, who said that, observes that diplomacy is, actually, is, is, is in fact extremely key. He said, uh, apart from time, airline tickets, and many, many cups of coffee, which I remember as a, as a diplomat, the main price is entirely political. It's difficult to sometimes for some of the people to pay the political price. And that political price would have to be paid by, by both sides. But there is no alternative to it. And I do believe that we should resort to what Professor Posen called a cheap diplomacy. And in my opinion, there is no alternative. Well, thank you so much. This was really great. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to The Katie Helper Show. If you like the show, please join the Patreon at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, we remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. Our show is produced by me, Katie Helper. Brad Bloom is our audio engineer and an associate producer on the show. Our researcher is Joshua Bregman. And our theme song is by the band Cordova. See you next time.